1: Priya, did you know that CSIS can show up to your door and ask you questions and you might never know why? No. Yes, so that's a real thing that happens. They can just ask you any questions and you don't ever have a, get an answer for why. But
2: why? Like They, they don't have arrest powers. They can So their, their CSIS can just show up anywhere and just be like, yo, we're CSIS? Tell us things? Yeah. And then they'll keep coming back. This has actually
1: been going on for a really long time, well before C51 was ever enacted. Monia Mazik is a human rights advocate who wrote a piece in the Huffington Post about Muslim men who are being visited by CSIS and asked all sorts of questions with no answer.
2: So the Liberals have tabled Bill C-22, which would create a parliamentary oversight committee. It's worth pointing out that there already exists an oversight committee, but there is no real parliamentary oversight, so that's the, the gap that this would serve. I have my doubts, personally, about how effective this will be, but I'd really like to speak to Monia about it. However, Vicky... Please tell us. Before we get into this, uh, the interview portion, I have a, uh, one more thing that I'd like to say about Black Lives Matter, but I guess more generally the way that politicians tend to ignore constituencies when they are black or brown. I'm Vicky Mochama. I'm Supriya Devetti. And this is Canada Land. This episode of Canada Land Commons is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of audiobooks. Vicki, what are you listening to on Audible?
1: Well, since we're talking about the weird logic of national security, I think a great book is Catch-22. It's all about all the weird rules that informed the military in the 1940s, and I think you'll love it.
2: For a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial, go to audibletrial.com slash canadaland. That's audibletrial.com canadaland. So, Supriya, what was on your mind? What was troubling you before the break? Well, look, when it comes down to it, we always hear, especially since the rise of Trump, all we hear by pundits, by political analysts is that we need to respect the white working underclass because now they've been left behind. And this this was shown during Brexit as well, that they've been left behind in terms of globalization and in terms of just they're not getting, I guess, a piece of the economic pie in the same way that they once did. And that's a completely legitimate, Argument And it's true. However, I feel like that same sort of argument is never really extended to black and brown constituents in the same way. Do you have any examples? Well, yeah, I do, actually. And this is a little bit of a, of a Toronto specific example. But after the Black Lives Matter sit in at Toronto Pride which happened about a week and a half ago at this point. You know, there's been a lot of kerfuffle and fallout since then. But what we've seen is this rallying around the police. And there's nothing wrong to rally around the police. But the one thing that I find quite striking is that when John Tory, who is the mayor of Toronto, reached out to Mike McCormick, who is the president of the Toronto Police Association, and you know pledged his support and said let me know yo I got you let me know if I can help essentially I'm paraphrasing here the letter people why isn't John Tory worried about black and brown constituents who are being targeted by police and who feel left out by not only the police but by the Tory administration in the same way especially when you consider that that Toronto is 47 percent visible minority he is a white man in the classic white man tradition and he goes
1: to his traditional power centers which is the police and other white people and as much as there might be black or brown people who might support him, he doesn't care for their votes particularly. But
2: see, here's the thing that's quite interesting to me and that the last federal election really proved this to be something. If there is a situation in which people from certain community feel targeted, and we saw this with the barbaric cultural practices tip line, I was always told by conservative organizers and, and backroom conservative types that demographically Muslims don't tend to vote. And this was considered to be essential, you know, gospel by like political pollsters, so they didn't necessarily reach out to them in the same way. Young people also don't vote. That's also something that we've heard time and time again. Yet what we saw with the last election is that Muslims and young people turned up to vote in record numbers. And I don't know why a John Tory or other politicians who are you know not reaching out to certain communities wouldn't look at that and be at least a little bit worried or a little bit scared or you know and and to use that information to then extend at least a bit of an olive branch nobody says he has to be wearing a black lives matter t-shirt by by any means at the next meeting but at least meet with them at, at least consider their concerns to be legitimate and that to me is the biggest mind fuck like i can't wrap my brain around that because everything we have says that like he should be caring about it in, in terms of the data involved but he does care about it but he does it in a performative way so politicians like john tory
1: do things like they'll go to carabana and they'll dance or they'll go to an indian event and they'll dance and then they take the photo op and they don't necessarily engage further with the community.
2: I know, but you know, and I just
1: I'm done with white men dancing like that does nothing for my community. It's
2: kind of paternalistic and it's patronizing in a way. And as you know, I'll, I'll use the example of Jason Kenney, who did a lot of community outreach. And you can't see this, but I'm using air quotes here um, in terms of, you know, he went to the mosques, the mandars, the gurdwaras and, and, and especially with the South Asian community and tried to reach out to them. But then you go and you are defending the barbaric cultural practices. Tip line, and you look at that and go, okay, well, there's something doesn't jive here. So even if, so, I, I like, I guess if Tory can show up to Carabana all he wants and do a little two-step, but at the end of the day, if you're not supporting those communities or even try to engage with them, why do you expect they'll show up to vote? I guess my conclusion to this would just be a warning to all politicians that black and brown people vote just as much as white people do, or we can, rather, when we care about something enough. And this might just be something that we care about enough.
1: Now let's get to the CSIS stuff. We're speaking to Monia Mazik, who is a human rights advocate and the national coordinator at the International Civil Liberties Monitoring Group.
2: Monia, why don't you tell us a little bit about what's going on? Why are Muslim men getting unannounced visits from CSIS at work or at home?
3: Well, this has been going on for a while. I mean, it's been going on since around 2005 and 4 and 6, and then there was a kind of a surge in 2009 as well, 10. So, and now I. Th- It seems, uh, once again, it is increasing. Personally, I don't know why they are doing this. They think that this is legitimate. They gather information. But uh, going to people at their workplace, at their um, home, um, calling them on phone, I think this is quite disturbing from um, a privacy point of view and from also um, individuals' rights. Now, did the people that you spoke with, did CISIS, Tell them why they were being questioned from what i understand usually when they go and uh, ask um, most of the time these are muslim men um, in the 2009 and 10 it was also all sort of activists so most of the time they tell them we need to ask you a few question about um, the community or we want to ask some question about certain people
2: if ceases does have legitimate concerns or they you know concerns that they perceive to be legitimate shouldn't they then be allowed to come court? question whomever they think could pose a threat.
3: Absolutely. I think this is the role of any intelligence agency is to gather information. However, those visits are unannounced. They do them at the workplace. Sometimes they do them also. uh, They come at home and then you have uh, your partner, you have your friends. You don't necessarily want everyone to know that you have been visited by intelligence police or intelligence officers. So and then also there is this kind of myth that you have nothing to hide and you Can sit down and talk, but this is not really reality. Most of people, and this is something that um, you can, um, you know, it's documented by a lot of activists who uh, notice that the more you give them, the more they want, and it's almost becoming like harassment. First of all, you really need to know why, really, me, because uh, they don't tell you this. And then the second is uh, well, you do it, you think it's harmless, but then you are. writing information, you know, you don't know what they will do with that information. That's very, very dangerous also.
2: So what should Vicky and I do if they come into the Canada land offices after this interview goes up um, (laughs) and start asking us a bunch of questions? Should we say like?
3: You are are not supposed to give them any interview. If they keep uh, coming to you and, you know, asking you for more and more and more questions, then you said, okay, we can have an interview, but it's going to be with my lawyer. And then fine. I mean, if they accept that, yeah, you can have a lawyer there. And then, he can stop them whenever he or she thinks that, you know, they just cross the boundary in terms of privacy and in terms of your own rights. But this is very important. Everybody has the right to privacy and everybody has the right, you know, to not answer these questions as long as um, they don't have any file, uh, I mean, criminal or investigation against them. You
1: bring up in the piece that the people you spoke to were all Muslim men and in the past been activists. Do you know specifically that Muslim men are being targeted?
3: I think from what I've heard here and there in the community and also what I um, i mean, I just heard from three uh, individuals. Yeah, there is a lot of scrutiny around Muslim community and specifically men. Yeah, they are being targeted.
2: You've brought up in the past the issue of diversity within the upper ranks of CSIS in terms of CSIS management. Can you explain a little bit why that matters to you?
3: At the end of the day, I mean, organizations are run by individuals and human beings. And if uh, within our organization, and I'm talking here like government agencies like CSIS, RCMP, and all other sort of agencies, if they are not, they don't have this sort of representation uh, of the diversity in terms of gender, male, female, and in terms also of culture, no matter how hard they are going to... To work in terms of being fair and objective, there will be always some sort of homogeneous kind of thinking and uh, stereotyping of the communities. And I'm not saying here all all our um, ceases or (laughs) police force should be represented and that's going to make them better or more sensitive to uh, culture and uh, other, you know, groups and uh, that wouldn't really eliminate all the biases but that would at least send a signal even if it is just a political correct one at least that they made the effort to listen to the concern of the some of the targeted groups and communities so if we don't even have that concern and uh, make at least a little bit of effort to re- include that representation or to include those concerns into the institution, that tells a lot about the institution itself.
2: It's interesting because we actually um, contacted CSIS, and it turns out that according to their 2014-2015 data, that visible minorities at CSIS make up 14.8% of the organization. Um, And they've stated that's a figure that they're looking to improve. But I mean, we actually don't know what that 14.8% means. Vicky pointed out that they could all essentially just be in EAs, right?
3: Absolutely. Yes. I mean, uh, of course, uh, these are just random numbers. And um, what matters is also to see those numbers, whether they are represented at the higher level, at the level of management, at the level of decision making. Sometimes, and here it is a bit ironic, I mean, they are going to use people who speak, for instance, Arabic or uh, Urdu or, you know, all these languages to go and meet with the uh, Muslim men or you know with those uh, targeted groups and community so if they are going to just be officer who are going to conduct this interview I think it is another kind of public relation oh you know that's fine we are going to have an officer you know who is going to speak your language so it can get more information so it, it is really very interesting to know what sort of representation here uh, are we using just you know um, the lower kind of level officer to go and do that sort of dirty job? Or are we really reflecting the diversity of our institution into the management into the decision making level?
2: Do you think it's gotten worse in recent years, this uh, ceases
3: coming to people's doors and asking them questions? Honestly, I don't have numbers to say that this got worse or it's being decreasing. From what I hear around me, and especially since we start hearing about the Islamic State, ISIS, there was like a surge of those visits and those, you know, kind of um, going to knock on doors of people or calling them and asking them for interviews. It is not something that has stopped at any time. But there are, uh, as if I can see it, like peaks, like waves, you know, and I think from what I hear, um, and this is not at all scientific, but this is from um, what I hear from people around me. And we work on these files every day. Uh, yes, we are in the middle of a wave. Now, the government
1: has tabled some legislation to give parliamentary oversight to the security agencies, which include CSIS. Do you think that will make a difference?
3: I hope. Uh, I have, frankly, some uh, reservation about that. The legislation itself, we welcomed it. We said it is something that has been done many years ago. However, we have many unanswered questions. I mean, I can give you just an example. This parliamentary committee is supposed to look into matters that are related to national security. And the legislation speak about it at the beginning. You know, yeah, they can look into all matters. And that seems so promising. But then, you know, you continue reading the legislation and you find really very, very uh, discouraging things like, uh, well, the minister can stop any sort of investigation if that infringe the national security so all this language that we have been hearing of all these past years and this kind of pretext of using national security to implement secrecy or to officialize secrecy is still there So what's the point? The other thing is, um, you know, um, at the end of the day, the report that this committee is going to have about any issue, it's going to go to the prime minister office table desk. And if the prime minister think or has been advised that this is going to harm national security, once again, he can say no. And so he has the right to veto. So again, these are not what we really are looking for for. We are really looking for for more transparency, more accountability. This is not a perfect solution.
1: Now, I want to ask you about an ongoing case that relates to this issue. Ken Stone is an anti-war activist, and he went to a human rights conference in Iran, and then he wrote an opinion piece in his local newspaper called Harper is Wrong in Demonizing Iran. He was then visited at home by CSIS agents, and he complained about it to the Security Intelligence Review Committee, which oversees CSIS. Do you have any hope
3: of what will come from that? Well, I mean, CERC, the Review Committee of CSIS, it was quite important institution body that would answer really question related to national security, to people like what you mentioned, you know, um, those activists who are visited or uh, arrested or sometimes, you know, intimidated. So it used to be quite useful institution. However, in the past, years, the previous government really appointed director who were, I would say, joke, really. I mean, Arthur Porter was nominated by Stephen Harper. And we all know all the corruption scandal and, you know, that were surrounding this individual. He was at the head of CERC. So what does it tell? I mean, that's sent a very bad message. Also, what we notice is that CIRC has been really underfunded in the previous year. It has been really understaffed. So, I mean, yes, we have a body that can and is supposed to really bring us some accountability, like to, you know, what happened to this activist you mentioned in Hamilton. I hope he will get some sort of justice, but I have a lot of hesitation to say that CIRC, as it right now, today, would really be helpful in answering all citizen complaint. So,
1: CIRC isn't necessarily the best avenue. Should people still be complaining to the community if they're
3: targeted? If it is there, yes, we have no choice then to use it, but um, it is not enough. We need more than that. And also, we shouldn't forget, I mean, CSIS is kind of the first uh, thing we see here, but there are many other agencies. There are more than 20 agencies doing the same sort of work related to national security that have little or sometimes nothing, really nothing in terms of oversight or accountability.
2: You mentioned political will. Do you think there's a newfound political will with the new government in terms of trying to, you know, make up for the lack of oversight that, that existed under under the Harper years?
3: I have some doubts here. I mean, so far, it's good we had this legislation, but, uh, you know, as I mentioned, it is not complete. It put us at kind of the same foot level with other um, countries. But I can see that this uh, government, I mean, how uh, open, and how promising it can be in other issues. Uh, Nevertheless, when it comes to national security, to those issues, they are very, very, I would say, shy, not really much on the front. Um, So um, maybe they are already intimidated by what some security advisors are telling them. I don't know, but they are not uh, as aggressive in terms of presenting legislation or in terms of measures to restore what we lost in the previous year, as maybe in other um, fields or, um, you know, so so far we are waiting here to see.
2: Why do you think that is? Like, Do you think national security is the one issue that makes government sort of cower and not really respect things like rule of law or due process?
3: It is quite, I think, difficult for a politician to defy or to challenge the security apparatus. Very, very hard. And it is really maybe sometime politically dangerous to do that, because if there is any violent action that happen by any groups, I mean, they are going to be uh, hammered uh, on the head. So they have a lot to lose. So it's really to strike a balance. And to have also, you know, a very good judgment. And um, it's not something that we can find a lot within um, politicians these days. There is more like uh, uh, this cloud over their head about uh, safety and terrorism and uh, national security.
1: So... Does it make a difference whether the people who are overseeing the intelligence organizations are a secret board of political appointees or if they're a secret group of parliamentarians? Is there a real difference?
3: Well, I think, uh, you know, they are not ready to rock the boat because there is no political uh, gain there, as long as we don't have big scandals showing how people's right has been, you know, abused. And as long as we don't have enough statistics and investigation that would bring those cases, then the public in general wouldn't really be interested. And then in consequence, politicians wouldn't be really interested. So I think this is where I how I can explain it. Uh, And then when it happens, usually we hear it. Oh, you know, these are bad apples. And this is really problematic because it's not uh, true. I mean, there are some systematic abuse targeting some communities. How are we going to deal with that? This is really the, the question. Monia, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you very much for having me.
2: Hey, Vicky, so there was a lot of you know, issues that were raised during that interview, a lot specifically with CSIS. We did reach out to CSIS and ask them to respond to some of the concerns raised. And uh, yeah, they did respond. So why don't you read some of that out? Yes.
1: Yeah, so here's what they said about the unannounced workplace and home visits. Intelligence officers from the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, CSIS, build relationships with individuals and human sources to collect information to advise our government about possible threats to the country. When it seeks cooperation or assistance of Canadians, CSIS emphasizes the voluntary nature of discussions. They deny that they engage in any racial profiling.
2: I deny that I own Magic Mike XL.
1: Like Supriya mentioned in the interview, CSIS got back to us with data about the diversity in their organization to say that 14.8% of the organization are visible minorities. On diversity, CSIS said, At CSIS, diversity is not only part of the culture, it is a core business strategy. The diversity of the CSIS workforce helps support the achievement of our objectives. It allows us to better understand the demographics of the Canadian communities we protect, therefore better equipping us to collect relevant and accurate intelligence.
2: Uh, It's also worth pointing out that the Muslim men that Monia was referring to did not want to further speak to the media, and I don't think I blame them in any way.
1: Not at all, and I think we'd definitely love to hear from anyone if they've been visited by CSIS at home or at work, so please reach out. That's our show for this week. Follow us on Twitter and find us on Facebook by searching Canada Land Commons. Our producer was the great Kevin Sexton. Our music is by Nathan Burley. You can go to CanadaLandShow.com, which is our website. And if you want to reach out to us, please email me Vicky at CanadaLandShow.com and you can email Supriya as well.
2: At Supria at Show.com. Our new show,
1: The Imposter, comes out tomorrow. It is hosted by the fabulous Aaliyah Pabani. Look out for it.
2: Shortcuts comes out on Thursday, and Commons comes out every two weeks from now on through the rest of the summer. We need to work on our tan. We need time. You to- need to work on your tan. If you like the show, support us. Patreon.com/CanadaLand.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again, one of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca CanadaLand to claim this offer.